Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Logan Freeman. He has facilitated over $150 million in over 125 separate real estate transactions and focuses on working with local and out-of-state investors to acquire investment properties in the greater Kansas City market. So thank you so much for coming on, Logan. Yeah, Charles, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure for you coming on. And so we can talk about your interesting background and uh, how you got started in real estate investing. But um, so tell us about that. You're personally and professionally yeah. prior to uh, getting the bug and starting to invest in real estate. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in Jefferson City, Missouri, which is the capital of Missouri, but kind of a small town. And I was an athlete my whole life, you know, went to college and played collegiate football. And had the opportunity after college to play a little bit in the NFL, and, and that didn't work out. Um, and so I went back to school and finished my master's degree and uh, decided to move to Kansas City and, you know, just started taking a couple jobs. But when I moved to Kansas City, I bought my first home and um, I had some mentors. I've been reading a lot of books about real estate investing. So I bought my first home, did my first kind of live-in uh, flip, so to speak. And, and um, you know, I made more in that that uh, transaction on on the house than I did in my my salary that year. And I said, man, I, I really need to start learning this. Well, fast forward a couple more years, a couple different jobs. You know, I had been fired from my last job. And this is just about five years ago now. And I, I decided that, you know what, it's time for me to get involved in real estate full time. And so I took a job as a head of acquisitions for a $50 million fund uh, here in Kansas City, buying single family homes, doing the buy, renovate, rent out and refinance just at scale. Well, we finished that portfolio for that for that fund. And I really wanted to understand where the capital came from. And so, you know, they said a word I had never heard before, which was syndication. And so I said, well, I don't know what that is. And so I went and read three books on it. And I said, well, that's exactly what I would like to do. And um, so I moved my license from that brokerage to a commercial multifamily brokerage and started to really understand and, and really get into multifamily and commercial real estate, helping out-of-state buyers kind of locate and go through the transaction process as a broker. I did that for about two and a half years and got some really good transactions under my belt and decided it was time for me to get into the ownership side. And uh, that was just around two and a half years ago. And 
Um, you know, since then, we have, um, you know, grown a portfolio of about 1,400 multifamily units across four states. And uh, we've really started to get into neighborhood retail shopping centers and mobile home uh, communities and uh, doing some development as well. And so we have a, a large team here in Kansas City now helping uh, passive investors and active investors invest in real estate, Charles. Nice, nice. So what is your current investment criteria and strategy for properties? And you're in a lot of different asset classes, so it might yeah. change per asset class. But um, uh, what are you guys really looking at for properties today? Well, I will tell you that we're value investors in the sense that uh, we're really trying to understand the intrinsic value of the cash flow stream on these projects. And the way that we think about this is kind of a, uh, a pyramid where you have core, core plus value add and opportunistic um, in those different uh, criterions. And uh, we do play in most of those um, asset types and, and different business plans. But traditionally, we have been, you know, value add investors where we could buy a property, and we could add value and force appreciation. Well, today's marketplace, it's very difficult to do that in a, in a risk adjusted way that we feel comfortable with. And so that is really you know, kind of challenged us to start looking at um, opportunities in, in the development space. So that would be in the opportunistic space and then also in the core plus. So the last two multifamily projects we have purchased have been 1995's built and then also 2015 built. And we have one under contract that's 2008 built. So, um, you know, it changes. But what I will say, the easiest way for us to really get comfortable with the deal is what are the in-place rents? And this is making an assumption that the demand drivers in regards to population, jobs, and unemployment is all strong in the area and crime is somewhat low and, and the average household income meets our criteria, which I can talk through those as well. But, you know, it really comes down to, you know, what are the in-place rents? And uh, typically we can get to right around uh, the 1% rule on the price to rent ratio. So if we're paying $150,000 per unit on a multifamily project, we like to see those rents somewhere between 1300 to 1500 with an opportunity to add, add value to those properties as well. And that's hard to do in yeah. today's marketplace. So that's on the multifamily side. Happy to jump in those other asset classes if you would like to. Yeah, that's great. And the uh, I want to talk about uh, just one thing you're talking about, which is I imagine with all your different asset classes. And one thing just as listening to you, which I've seen as a recurring theme as interviewing hundreds of people and as the market gets hotter and hotter, um, that people, more experienced investors in syndicators, us being one of those, have gone into better properties as cap rates have compressed. And we used to love CEC Plus, And yeah. now, Ever, all, all of our CNC plus is on the market and we are now only really dealing with B minus and above. And we've seen it because of the cap rate compressing and we've seen that returns are very similar between C and B. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously you're getting a better asset with B and you're getting a better tenant or in most right. cases. So to speak to this about that, Logan, of what you're seeing there as well. Yeah, Charles, I mean, look, I'll just give you an example, okay? So we bought a 426-unit portfolio two years ago, and uh, our going-in purchase price per unit was $43,000 a door. And so we added $7,000 per unit, so our basis is $50,000, okay? And that is a renovated unit, and rents are $750 and above, okay? So that's, that. I would say that that is kind of our typical value-add play, and that is 1970s Class C products, similar to what you're speaking to. Well, we have received offers and broker opinions of value on those projects for now north of $75,000 a unit, 
And so, um, you know, when we're going out there in the marketplace and looking at these deals, you know, the value is already priced into the going in purchase price. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this is kind of a similar uh, situation to what, um, you know, Munger always talks about, which is margin of safety. And so if I don't have a margin of safety, what is my actual cost basis on these properties? What you're speaking to, Charles, is the class B and C have compressed together. And so you're taking more risk with an older asset, thinking that you might be able to add value to get to a newer, you know, a better, a better product, when in all reality, you can buy a newer product that probably is going to have organic rent growth already baked into the project for the same basis and you're going to have a lot less capex. So I think it just comes from a, a risk standpoint. And, and, you know, we all know that construction costs are not going down. Labor costs are not going down. They're going up. And so, um, you know, just like you mentioned, I think everybody has to get started. And when you get started, typically you're going into scattered site multifamily projects that might be a little bit older, red brick buildings, you know, Midwest stuff. And, and so you, know, you got to get started. You got to get some some deals under your belt. And so you take a little bit more risk. But in today's marketplace, I'm not seeing the value on these Class C projects because they are, you know, um, you know, I think the value that you, you, you see is already baked into the going in purchase price and there is no margin of safety. And so um, you pair that with rising inflation and costs with also interest rates that are not as low as they were, um, there's just more risk there. And so we, we like to put, uh, we like to put that to paper and really try to quantify that. And that's, that's kind of, we've come to the same thesis as you have. So you, you mentioned uh, a couple minutes back, you mentioned uh, about things you look for in a market and uh, three things that we look for whenever I talk to an investor, when I'm talking to other partners, it is, um, you know, increase in job growth, in that market, we want to see population growth, and we want to see you know steady increases there, and uh, let's say over a twenty-year period, and steady decreases in crime. Is there anything more specific that you guys are looking into? And you know what 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 is what really you know thirty thousand foot view? Let's not we're not going to like get into specifics yeah. exact, but what are you looking for? Anything different than that when you're going into a market? Is there anything that um, you kind of uh, your team really works off of when uh, deciding? I mean, I think we start with the same demand drivers that you do there, but it really comes down to the feel of the area, you know, and, and not just during daylight times when you're, you know, when you can get to the property, but really understanding what's it feel like at night. And we kind of have this rule of, you know, newer projects that we're buying. Would we send our wives or our husbands, if, if we have a female working on the project, to go collect rent? You know, would we feel comfortable doing that? And um, that is more of a gut feeling, I will say. There is kind of a, a, a rule of thumb too. Where's the closest Starbucks? You know, how close is the Starbucks, right? And, and so that's just always a unique spot. If it's five miles away, then you may be a little bit out from where you want to go. But if it's, you know, five minutes away, you might be in the ballpark. And so there's some things like that that we try to just get a feel for after being, you know, so involved with so many transactions, driving a property, walking it, going to the coffee shops nearby, if there are those, and visiting the retail shopping centers around there, you really get a feel for the folks that are living in that space as well. Um, and so that's one thing. And then looking at the competitive uh, you know, landscape as well. Where, where else can people live if it's a multifamily property? Where is the closest shopping center for buying a shopping center? And so just trying to, you know, walk and drive those other competitive, um, you know, properties that would be, you know, marketing to the same tenants as well as something that we like to do. 
Yeah, it's a great, it's like the 10 PM test. We'd call it when you're like driving by at night and seeing how everything is. And then uh, during the day, you're seeing how many spots have cars in them. That's right. You know, so you see who's working nine to five. Now it's all different with COVID, but for the most part, when you're buying in these places, you want to see a kind of an empty parking lot during yeah. the day. Um, you know, that people more have office jobs, a little bit more stable than um, other, other jobs um, as, as we kind of think. And that's all obviously just like you said, it's, there's nothing scientific about it. We're not counting cars or anything like that. It's just, right. you get the feeling as you said, which is the gut. And that's a big part about investing, especially in new areas or areas that you're new to, and they might be pushing the boundaries of gentrification in that area. Um, yeah. One last oh, thing I'll, I'll add yeah. to that, Charles is just, you know, if you're not operating the property as a property manager, really spending time with the property managers and, and how they feel about those areas yeah. as well. You know, if somebody says, hey, I'm not going to manage in that area, there's probably mm -hmm. a reason why. I mean, I own property in Kansas City that some managers do not manage in, and there is a reason why. And so you get some of that qualitative nature and, and kind of data from your, your operators as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then also you can talk to those property managers too. And have you made money in this neighborhood before? Do you have rentals in this neighborhood? Yeah. Um, and these are all simple things because if it keeps on coming, no, no, well, then the information they're giving me might not be accurate. That's right. And I want to find that manager there that has made it work and what he does. And there's different ways of managing property and there's different people for different properties as I found. Um, but, um, so you're a real estate agent, not many investors that come on the show, myself being, I'm a real estate agent, Florida, but I don't really utilize it for that. It's only yeah. for referrals, but you've utilized it, um, as an agent, how has that helped you grow your investing business? Cause that's a question I imagine you get all the time. Sure. And it's something that I get too. Should I become an agent as if I want to be an investor end game? I mean, my, my thought process around this was I, when I got started, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so being able to get coached by experienced people and experienced sponsors was really important to me. And so, you know, for me, I use it as my, you know, my, my track record, right? I use it as, hey, I'm going through and I'm underwriting all of these projects. I'm walking them. I'm estimating the rehabs. I'm doing all of the analysis on these projects. So I got, you know, 500 you know, reps under my belt before I ever, you know, purchase my own project. And then I get to go through the actual transaction process. So understanding what do you uncover in due diligence? What do you uncover in physical inspections? How do you underwrite a deal? Um, you know, talking to contractors and seeing what their bids come in at. So before I ever purchased my own property, I was able to, you know, I'm going to say this, use other people's money to learn uh, the transaction process. And so I saw a lot of red flags that happened. I had to work through them. That kind of gave me uh, quite a bit of experience before I purchased my own deals. And I imagine you knew exactly what to say to an all commission real estate broker when you want to buy that made them feel nice and warm inside when you're submitting offers. That's exactly right. You know, this, in, in, especially in today's uh, competitive environment, you have to elevate your offer. And so yeah. um, how to package that up and negotiate uh, for clients was a, a great experience, you know, and, and learned a lot of lessons from that as well. Now, one thing I kind of want to talk about as well is that, um, I was reading that about 50, over more than 50% of your transactions you've completed were off market. Yeah. So how do you successfully, or how have you successfully sourced off market properties? And um, obviously investors, we know why investors like this because there's no competition. You think you yeah. can get a better deal. You're most likely possibly, if it's not coming from a broker, you can get a, you know, even you know, reduce some of the commission if not eliminate it. But let us know about that, how you, how you sourced them and how you're so successful doing that. 
Well, you know, I come back from a, a traditional sales background, which is just picking up the phone and making connections with people. I mean, this is people own these deals. And so, um, you know, making over 100 calls to owners per day, you know, is what I used to do. And when I was out looking at properties, if I was buying, you know, uh, multifamily properties, I would drive the neighborhood, see and write down addresses and see what I thought was, you know, something that stood out. So for example, you know, I'd drive a property if I knew I was going to a different one and I'd line up four or five deals to just walk around the area. And I'd say, hey, I noticed that there's some paint that's chipping over here. Or I noticed that, you know, the trash was over here. And sometimes, you know, owners don't want to hear that stuff, but sometimes <laughs> they're like, man, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I'm going to call my property manager right now. And oh, by the way, what do you do? You know, so it, that that just got the conversation started with people. Um, and so that's how I got started was just picking up the phone and making those connections. Utilize LinkedIn quite a bit as well, um, just as a thought process and, and um, you know, building a following on there has been huge. Um, so that brings in a lot of opportunities. I'm on the, I'm on a board of directors for a nonprofit. I get leads through church. I tell everybody what we do and how we do it. Uh, I make relationships with property managers, with with bankers, with um, you know contractors, with uh, inspecting companies, all of these folks, just so they know what we're doing and how we're doing it. And so whenever they need somebody, they say, "Hey, you should talk to Logan." You know, I'm not sure if that's going to fit his criteria, or he might be able to help, but he probably knows somebody who does. And so uh, making sure that you kind of get the Michael Jordan effect where stuff starts coming to you and people want to bring you opportunities. That's taken some years to get that going. Um, but now that's, that's a lot more inbound than it needs to be on the outbound side. Nice. Yeah, that's great. And uh, just master networking, I guess, is what it that's is right. to find exactly. out. That's, uh, that's great. And yeah. Doing what other people won't do or don't want to spend the time doing. Um, so now I, you're in four States. I imagine the majority of this is, or all of it is in the Midwest. So tell us about, I mean, we hear about Midwest investing. We hear a lot about the Sun Belt. We hear a lot about the Southeast. Now talk up why the Midwest, why you love the Midwest for investing and why everybody else should. Well, this has transitioned a little bit because my pitch used to be <laughs> that, uh, you know, institutions weren't coming to the Midwest and that's changed, Charles. So um, the pitch used to be, hey, these are tertiary markets, secondary markets, maybe even third tier markets that folks are not bidding on uh, these deals. And so you can still get cash flow. That is still true to an extent. Uh, but there has been a lot of capital flows into the Midwest for, for good reasons. And I'll talk through some of those. I think the number one uh, piece that I would say is just affordability. I mean, I think that there's been a flight to affordability. Folks don't have to necessarily go into the office all the time. So maybe if they can cut their rent in half and they could work from wherever, they put, you know, a decent amount of money back in their pockets. And so, you know, frankly, when we think about the affordability metrics, right, you don't want 30, more than 30% of your income going to your housing expense. Well, in the Midwest, I mean, other than maybe living downtown Chicago or the, the, the high rise that I'm looking at outside my office right here, you can still find good quality places to live that have space, they have amenities for much less than your 30% of your, your income. So I think the affordability metric is really important. I mean, for example, like two and three bedrooms here go from anywhere from 1100 to, you know, 1400. So you can get a three bed, two bath, nice new, you know, class B apartment deal. And you can get a, a rental unit where you have your whole family in for 1400 bucks a month. 
And that's, you know, with the pool and, and the gym and all of that stuff. And so I think that that's um, important for investors. And then as, you know, people continue to move to the Midwest, that's only going to create more demand, which should allow you to then push those rents. And so if we're going in on a value add deal and we're at, let's say, 12 percent, 13 percent of of the affordability, so 12% of their income is coming to rent, then you know, we know that if we push that three or four hundred basis points up to 15%, the tenant population could still pay for that. And so I think that's an understanding too, is like, you know, in Kansas City, there's certain areas where we have, let's just say $75,000 of median household income. Well, 30% of that's 1900 bucks. And so you, you'd be hard pressed to find a suburban deal here that's going to charge you 1900 bucks to live in. And so, I mean, when you think about it from that perspective, I think that's that's attracting a lot of investors because they're seeing some value there. That'd be the number one. And then I guess during COVID too, you know, we're, uh, we got some red states here in the Midwest. And so a little less uh, on the shutdown and, and things like that. I mean, we're pretty business friendly here in Missouri and in Kansas and things like that. And so I think that that uh, also helps when you think about landlord rights and protection and and being maybe a little insulated from um, a shutdown, let's say, than maybe you are in a, in a gateway market. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think a lot of people that own property um, in tenant-friendly states, let's say, got a rude awakening in yeah. 2020. And um, some people are just getting out of it uh, in the last few months. So it's, it's crazy. Yep. Um, so let's talk about... Uh, Say someone with a couple of rentals now, I mean, what would you suggest they do to scale their investment portfolio? You've worked with a lot of investors. Yeah. I imagine you've seen this happen a number of times. Well, I, I think that Stephen Covey said it best. You need to start with the end in mind. And hmm. unfortunately, right now is a very difficult time for people to go self-source single family homes or duplexes or anything because- well, frankly, I mean, there's a lot of owner occupants that are looking to buy those properties. And so we have that on one hand. We also have, you know, um, REITs and institutions on the other hand, buying up, you know, full areas of cities for prices that, you know, maybe the owner occupants not willing to pay. And then you have people that are trying to buy, you know, houses for the first time. And, and so I've heard multiple times that there's a lot of, uh, of, of deals. I just talked to an agent yesterday he said man we're making offers at 50 60,000 above list price and not getting them and so when you look at the available inventory that creates a real struggle for first time investors and so for me it's start with the end in mind and if you can find a group like yourself Charles or, or our company or somebody who's been doing it for some time, they should inherently have some deal flow that allows people to maybe get access to it. I think there's a mentality that, you know, to own property, you have to be a landlord. And that's just not the case anymore. The Jobs Act of 2012 really opened the door for owner operator, for operators to really start using digital marketing, social media uh, for the benefit and getting access to, to investment opportunities. And that's fairly new in the private investment space. And so, so, you know, if you start with the end in mind, you say, okay, well, what am I trying to accomplish? Okay, well, how much knowledge, experience, time, and capital do I have? And then each person along that spectrum has a certain amount on each one of those levels. And so a lot of the folks that reach out to me are kind of one of two buckets. One, I have a 1031 exchange. I need help now to find a property. Two, hey, I don't have time to do anything. I know I need an allocation to re, you know, real estate. Can you help? And so um, I think that Bigger Pockets is a wonderful forum and a wonderful platform, but it really kind of 
teaches people how to maybe try to do it themselves, which I think is great to an extent if you do have some of that experience and time and capital to do so. If not, then find a you know experienced group that's operating in the space that you want and see what they're up to. I think that's what I would say. Uh, some great information there. So Logan, after about 125 plus cl- uh, completed transactions, yeah. what are common mistakes you see real estate investors make? Well, I think that um, two things. The first one being that uh, they don't come see the property. And mm. so, I, I mean, working with so many folks that are out of state buying multi-million dollar properties and not seeing them, I can only do so much through FaceTime, through <laughs> showing them, you know, demographics and all of that, right? So, I mean, I really want and, and like people to come visit the markets and um, if they're they're active investors, right? If they're doing a 1031 exchange or, or they're buying a piece of property. The second one is, you know, there's there's kind of this um, this mantra of do it yourself, like DIY, do everything yourself and um, just to save a few bucks. And my feedback to that is always, let's pay for the experienced folks that will protect you in a transaction. So for example, as a commercial real estate broker, I see a lot of times folks just want to kind of use board forms and, and, and or they don't want to get an attorney involved. And I've seen that go the wrong way, maybe with an earnest money deposit that gets you know sent and then certain things in the contract that is a a Missouri or Kansas real estate commission contract, but then they, they don't have the protection that they maybe maybe had if, if they talked with an attorney and drafted a contract themselves. That's just one example. Same thing on inspections. I always recommend the top inspectors. Are they more expensive? Absolutely. Will they save you money down the road because they're going to uncover uh, a sewer line? Absolutely. You know, that's collapsed. And so I think that um, you really need to make sure that you don't try to skimp on your due diligence because it's going to come back to bite you in the in the rear sometime as, as, as you own that property. And so those are the two pieces or two mistakes that I kind of see, um, you know, investors make is, is skimping on due diligence and not seeing the property physically or the market that they're investing in. Yeah, I always tell people if you know if you, if you're investing in a market that you're not in, um, you know, know the market, but drive the market. You know, spend time driving yeah. the market and know the neighborhoods, because if you say, oh, I, I love Kansas City, then you know there's there's probably hundreds of different neighborhoods, right? So it's like, hey, something comes up, oh, I don't know that neighborhood, and then you're doing your due diligence while somebody else that's already done their due diligence goes, I love this neighborhood. This is exactly what I want. They already got money that's hard on it already, that's and right. you're still trying to like set up a showing and ask uh, how close this is to X, Y, and Z. That's so, exactly right. Yeah. So know your markets and then you can be a lot more confident and your broker will take you seriously mm-hmm. um, when you've dr- flown somewhere or yep. driven it. And then you also know, you know, you review their old listings too and say, I like this. I didn't like this. But I like this neighborhood. I like this. And then they're like, okay, now this person's really serious and they know the area. And now when I send them something, they'll move on it because it's, they've done all the research. There's no, you know, extreming uh, circumstances that uh, can't be found at this point. But um, so some great information there. Uh, well, going for you yourself personally, what do you think are some of the main factors that have uh, contributed to your success over the years, Logan? Well, I think just staying in the game, Charles, and uh, continuing to be humble enough to learn and be open for coaching and learning experiences. I mean, it's like what the attorneys say, you know, past performance does not produce, you know, future results, right? Uh, or is not indicative of future results. I think it's the same thing in our business. You have to stay fluid. You got to be able to pivot. 
the market changes. And if you're a one trick pony, then you're probably going to get left in the dust. And yeah. so, you know, you really have to be able to understand um, what's happening in different markets from a macro and a micro you know, standpoint and, and figure out, okay, where's my investment thesis fit in that and be willing to change and pivot based on those different changes um, that are going on. So I think that's one thing. I think the other, the other piece is, man, it, it's a knife fight every single day. This is a business that, you know, really takes some grit, some perseverance, a lot of um, a lot of emotional intelligence, and you have to be able to kind of stay out of the peaks and valleys and stay really constant on a regular basis. The last would just be really surrounding myself with people that I can delegate to and elevate. Right. So there's a lot of different things that you have to do in the commercial real estate space, and you're not going to be good at all of them. So understanding what your sweet spot is, staying in that and then surrounding yourself with people that can help support you, I think is very important. So we take a very much a, a team approach to investing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, partnership is definitely important when you're getting to the scale that uh, that you're at. Yeah. Um, so Logan, how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? Well, I appreciate that, Charles. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you search Logan Freeman, Mr. Kansas City, my big head will pop up. I post there every single day and I really try to educate and, and bring value from that. Um, perspective. And then, you know, our website is ftwinvestmentsllc.com. We're highly focused in the Midwest. We don't really go outside of that. And so we stay kind of true to our Midwest roots, so to speak. And, <laughs> and uh, for good reason, I mean, we're owner operators, we're managing the deals. And so we need to be able to get to them. Thank you for that, Charles. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much for coming on today. We'll put all your links to your, uh, to your business and to your other, I know you have another personal website as well, that we will stick into the show notes. And uh, thanks so much for coming on. Looking forward to connecting with you in the near future. Thanks so much, Charles. I'll talk to you soon. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.